Welcome to Emerging, the official podcast of the Trout Unlimited and Costa Five Rivers program, brought to you by Sims Fishing Products. Emerging is about enabling the young angling community to drive progress in the fly fishing industry and the conservation of the places we love to fish. My name is Joseph Burney, and I'll be your host along with Andrew Lafredo. For this episode, we got a chance to talk with Nat Gillespie from the U.S. Forest Service about his job, a little bit about public lands, and some conservation issues pressing those places. We hope you enjoy it. Welcome back to the podcast, guys. This is episode 12. We are so excited for this episode. Um, we have Nat Gillespie from the National uh, U.S. Forest Service on with us, and we're super excited to talk to him. Um, we're super glad to have this episode and focus uh, a little more on conservation. Um, we talked about that a lot with Rachel, um, but get another perspective and talk about our national forests and the amazing things uh, that those have to offer. So, Welcome to the podcast, Nat. Um, I'd love for uh, for people that don't know you, uh, mind giving giving a little introduction. Thanks for having me. You bet. You bet. Uh, so I uh, go by Nat. I work with the Forest Service. I'm in the headquarters. I'm the assistant fish program leader. Uh, so I deal with fisheries issues from all over the country, which uh, which is great and uh, work with about 300 fisheries biologists that the Forest Service employs and, and work through the regional offices. So uh, I'm in D.C., but I get to work with people living in some amazing places. That's awesome. Um, so taking it back to the very beginning, um, what, what got you into fly fishing and conservation to begin with? Well, like... Most of the people, I think, that start to fish, you know, I was introduced by someone in my family. My grandfather was a, was a great fly fisherman. So I was exposed to that as a kid in the Catskills. Um, and I grew up in Virginia, fished all over, fished for everything I could, you know, from catfish and carp to bass. And, you know, I went to college um, and I thought to myself, you know, I'd really like to do something in conservation in fisheries. Um, and I'd been lucky enough to find a job in Montana when I was in high school. So I went out to Bud Lily's Trout Shop in West Yellowstone and worked in the fly shop. And uh, was earning minimum wage, which was like $4 an hour back then, and, and working with the flies. And, and uh, all the fishing guides took me under their wing. They showed me how to fly fish. I learned how to tie from some famous tires that came through the shop, and I was just a fishing maniac there. And, you know, wanted to do that for my career. Uh, the short story is that I had read a book when I finished college on watershed restoration written by some of the folks that the Trout Unlimited community would know, Chris Wood. Uh, who runs TU and Jack Williams, who was a scientist, and Mike Dombeck, who ran the Forest Service. And I read this book and I thought, man, I would love to get into watershed restoration. And so I called 
the president of Trout Unlimited at the time every day. Finally got him on the phone two weeks later and said, I want to work for you. And he said, well, why don't you come talk to me? Uh, so I drove down from Connecticut where I was living, talked with the boss. And um, they didn't have a job for me. But about a year later, a job opened up in the Catskills. And I started working for Trout Unlimited. And so that's that's how I got my start working in conservation. And from there, I was lucky enough to work for Trout Unlimited for another uh, seven years, and then I, I landed at the Forest Service about 10 years ago. So it's been a journey, but it all started with fishing with my grandpa. little off-topic question, but um, I have a roommate from Virginia, so we have this this little talk every once in a while. Is it a rock? Is it a rockfish, or is it a striper? Well, if you're in the Chesapeake Bay, it's rock, rockfish. But if you're on the coast of the Atlantic, like New Jersey on up, it's stripers. Yeah, that's that's the common consensus we come to. But I thought I thought I had to slip that in there. Um, So prior to reading, reading the book, were you already like studying fisheries in college? What what led you to that in the first place? Uh, You know, where I went to college at the time didn't have a fisheries program. It was a liberal arts school, but it had environmental studies. And so I, I, I majored in environmental studies, and um, and then I was reading all these technical books, you know, trying to learn. Got the job with Trout Unlimited, but then decided to go back to graduate school and really learn more of the science. And so that's what drew me to go to um, graduate school. I went to the University of Michigan, their natural resource program in Ann Arbor, you know, and, and I chose that school because I knew a couple of the professors were really good in aquatic ecology, really understood river processes. And so, you know, I went there just for those professors and worked with them and worked for them and took their classes and took some fisheries classes, but, but really tried to get that broad education about watersheds and hydrology and geomorphology mm-hmm. and ecology. And so, you know, I'm a little different than some of these uh, amazing fish biologists at the Forest Service who get their technical degree in fisheries. I studied more broader, you know, aquatic ecology, and and then um, and I've had some fisheries jobs to help fill in the fill in the blank. So that's that was the path I took. You know. Yeah. Do you think that um, working in Montana and seeing all those amazing places and being able to learn how to fish in the Catskills, how did that contribute to deciding that career path? Did you know, like, when you like when you're in Montana and came back and you had that time in high school to think about what you were going to major in in college? Like, what effect did that have on you? It, it was an incredible impact. Being first of all, being in the landscape of Montana, you know. You, you, a lot of people grow up in the East. They might get to see the big sky country or the Rockies and they fall in love with it. And it was, it was amazing to see that, but it was so cool to just meet all these different people, you know, all these Western folks who I hadn't been exposed to a bunch of them were ranchers. You know, they had horses, they were fishing guides. I, I met many professional fishing guides and I just got into the culture that way, you know, um, and so 
you know, I met some folks from these big agencies, you know, the park service, we were in Yellowstone park fishing all the time. Uh, the Custer Gallup national forest is right there, you know, incredible forest service fishing landscape. And so you just, I just sort of started meeting these people and I'm like, man, how cool would it be to continue to learn more and see these places and, and make a difference. And so, you know, I took a couple other jobs, too, that that exposed me around the country. I did the Student Conservation Association right out of college. I always tell people who are in college or finishing, you know, check out some of these programs where you can go and work for an agency and see this amazing country. So I got to go to the Columbia River system. That's where I took that Student Conservation Association job. And there I met all kinds of fish biologists working for the Fish and Wildlife Service, for NOAA, for the states. I met some folks working with Indian tribes. And so at that point, I knew there were all kinds of fisheries jobs. And then it was just a question of getting lucky and getting in the door and getting noticed. And, and you know, I, I got my foot in the door with Trout Unlimited, and I'll, I'm eternally grateful to have been able to go work in the Catskills. And, you know, it's just a matter of just learning what's out there and being exposed. And so I think most people don't even know there's a giant world uh, of a career path in conservation. Yeah, totally. And it's super cool to hear, hear that story of how you just, you called the president you're like, Hey, I want to work for you. And I think that's a good example. And I think people are afraid sometimes to just, cold call someone or like if you really are passionate about something, go for it. And you did that. And, um, you're in the position where you are now looking back on like that ambition and being excited and glad you did it. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there aren't that many people in the world that know what they want to do. First of all, you know, and I always love fish just like, you know, you and a lot of people that listen to this show and, you got to go for it. And, you know, who cares if people think you're annoying or if they think you're a pain, it's like, you got to get your time in front of them and get your shot. And if they say no, that's fine. Yeah. Then you're right back where you started. Like if they say no, it's like the same thing as you sitting there, uh, not asking them in the first place. Yeah, exactly. So going into the forest service, what, what are the origins of the Forest Service um, to to start? Like, what's a little bit of the history? Sure. Yeah, it's, it's an old agency, you know. Um, it was founded in 1905. And there's some, some names that most people will know that were involved. So Teddy Roosevelt, you know, the conservation president. The man. He, he designated the first national forest reserves, as they call them. And he was working with Gifford Pinchot, who is a famous, you know, first Forest Service leader. And, and he was influenced by John Muir, who people know about, you know, in California. And basically, these leaders started the Forest Service because our country was devouring the forest. The industrial forestry was rampant. And these big companies with no rules were just clear cutting and just burning through, you know, our natural resources. And so they had the foresight to say, this is crazy. We need some sustainability. Let's protect these forest reserves, not just for timber, for a sustainable supply, but for water. 
And so those two things were the sort of foundations of the Forest Service. And, you know, over time, the people have recognized the value of these of these public lands for all kinds of great things, like the recreation economy, obviously hunting and fishing are huge, and wildlife watching, um, and, you know, sustainably using our natural resources, including timber and, and mining and, and things like that. And so, yeah. You know, it was it was founded just I think from a really logical perspective of we can't use everything up. We got to protect things for the long term, and thank God they did that. Yeah, and I think that people didn't know at the time the timber companies like timber and forestry is one of the more sustainable um, businesses because you plant a stand, you cut it, you grow it back, and I've had to hear a lot about that because one of my roommates is a forestry major. But it's really interesting because back then they were just, like you said, clear-cutting everything. But you have this really sustainable resource, and if managed properly, is is great in so many ways. Yeah, absolutely. And, and sort of the, the mantra of the Forest Service is the greatest good for the greatest number, you know, and over the long term. And so it's really built on this idea of, you know, you need you need these things for the economy, like trees and and you have to have mining, you have to have ranching, but let's do it the right way. Let's do it over the long term in mind and protect all the other resources. So, you know, that's why I love the agency. It's it's pretty um, straightforward and utilitarian. It's not exclusive. You know, you can do all kinds of things on the foresters. You obviously can hunt and fish, you can camp, you know, um, you can, you know, ride your ATV in a lot of places. There's there's designated wilderness where you can't do a lot of things. But in general, it's it's like having access to, you know, your uncle's property or something, yeah. or it's like a friend. You can do what you want there as long as you play by the rules. It's a big so, playground. It's a great yeah. So, Nat, how does the Forest Service really manage that this diverse interest groups, right? Because there's so many interests, right? You know, as you kind of highlighted uh, a little bit about, um, you know, fishing, hunting, uh, camping, and how do you manage their needs with the guy ripping an ATV uh, around and somebody wants to cut some timber on it? Yeah, well, it's it's a real balancing act. You know, it's it's also called, you see it on the sign, the land of many uses. And, you know, it sounds corny, but it, it is. And, you know, the way you do it is there's, there's all kinds of rules. You know, there's lots of public involvement, you know, the NEPA, the National Environmental Policy Act was passed in the seventies. And so the public gets to basically have a say in almost everything that we do. And, you know, it's, it's a balancing act. So, you do allow things like timber cutting and mining and, and ranching for livestock in a lot of places, but there's, there's all kinds of rules associated with it. And they're very, they're very good. They're very strong. And the, tim how the timber regulations are much better than almost all the state regulations. And so you also have, you know, um, lots of things that are done for restoration. That's what gets me excited is all the cool watershed and stream restoration and working with this, to bring back species that are rare and that kind of thing. So that you got that going on, and then you've got all these campgrounds, and, and, and you know, they're they're managed in a way for protecting the resource, also making it a great experience for people. So, you know, in the end, if 
all the stakeholders are sort of happy, you're probably doing the best job. Or if everyone's a little bit mad at you, you're doing what you're supposed to. So it's one of those kind of deals. Yeah. So how many acres total, Nat, is forest service managed land? It's uh, over 193 million acres. So it's a big piece of real estate. It's hard to wrap um, your head around. Is that uh, bigger than the park and BLM in terms of it's, acreage? It's it's bigger than the park service. It's bigger than the Fish and Wildlife Service, but it's less than the Bureau of Land Management. Interesting. Yeah, it's about four percent of the entire country is national forest or grass. Speaking to something that's passed recently, or I know the Biden administration's talked about is the 30 for 30 30 by 30 um how does that affect what y'all are doing at the forest service yeah the the 30 percent of the country by 2030 protected you know we're gonna see how it affects us um the way i think it will affect us is we will work with some of these great conservation partners to identify some lands that are private you know owned by company or a person that that would be really smart put into the public estate as public lands and work through that like i'm thinking groups like the conservation fund or nature and they do that now right so they mm-hmm. they buy land they protect it they uh, move it over to the forest how much um, i think what's the percent right now if you know off the top of your head that's currently protected Oh, of the, of the country. Mm-hmm. I don't know. It's, it's probably somewhere, you know, 15% or something like that. Let me see if I can hit a quick Google search on that. Yeah. <laughs> see what the magic box tells us. The, the other thing I think is there'll be more wilderness designation, you know, the, the um, capital W wilderness where you really, you don't have a lot of these multiple uses, right? You don't have any mechanized equipment. You obviously don't have oil drilling and, and, you don't have timber harvest and you don't have roads. So there's probably going to be more wilderness within the forest service. Yeah. And you know, the other thing that I'm excited about is perhaps we as managers can identify this really special watershed and those really special rivers that should be part of this 30 and 30 that, that maybe need more protection than they currently have to work with, you know, the other stakeholders, the other NGOs and the other agencies to protect those watersheds that are on forest service. Yeah, the result from the result from Google was fourteen percent. That number was from twenty fifteen, but um, that was the number okay. that was the number it gave me. So that's a pretty big feat. Yeah, um, I mean, but you know what? With climate change, we, we got to do something now. Totally. And, and with the way that our society is consuming resources and using water and pushing all these species to the brink, I think it's it's a, it's a smart idea and we can make it happen. Yeah. So of all that land that's managed by the forest service, what's the favorite in your mind that, that you visited? Man, that is almost an impossible question. <laughs> answer. There's so many amazing places. Uh, the, the ones that come quickly to mind are, First of all, Alaska is incredible. The, Tong- the Tongass National Forest is 17 million acres. It's the rainforest. It's great salmon runs in the Chugach. 
with the Kenai Peninsula. Um, and then you have the Rockies and uh, Pacific Northwest. And I love the Appalachians um, with all the diversity. You know, I'm going to go uh, close to home. And I'm going to pick the Monongahela National Forest in West Virginia because mm. I can get there from D.C. easily. Um, those ancient mountains have all this incredible diversity of life. I mean, it's, I think, one of the places with the highest diversity of salamanders and moss and lichen in the world. But it's got all these great brook trout streams. Mm-hmm. And a uh, beautiful forest that's coming back from the devastating cutting that happened before it was a national forest so it's sort of returning to its incredible state you know so i like that about it and it's just i just think it's such a beautiful place so i'm gonna go with the monongahela it's just so cool because you can kind of look at a map and like where i work pretty much every weekend we border um federal land and it's just so cool because you can just like in most places in the South and in like the Southeast, it's, it's a lot of, lot of private land. And I'm always looking on Onyx to make sure that I'm not screwing up and stepping on someone's land. Um, but it's just so amazing. Like, it's so cool to be able to just like walk onto, um, like national forest property. And it's just like a playground. Like you can, um, you can go, I like to go walk my dog and like shed hunt. And it's just, yeah. it's a really cool thing. And it's a really cool thing that exists. And, um, I love public lands. It's super, it's super awesome. And, uh, speaking more into your job, like what's the, what's the day to day look like for you at the forest service? Yeah, that's a, it's a great question. So for me, it's, it's never the same thing every day because I'm working at the headquarters of this big agency trying to help the regions deal with all their fisheries issues. So a lot of policy work, you know, we, we have to review some maybe legislation that might affect fisheries. Uh, we're trying to deal with how to make sure that the, the kind of restoration work that's happening that needs to happen with roads or with streams is is going to be effective. So I work with partners all the time, which is amazing. You know, I get to work with the best partners in the world for fisheries like Trout Unlimited and American Rivers and all these local groups. Um, you know, we're, we're always trying to figure out how to tell our story and, and share this incredible work that's going on on public lands so that the American public and Congress, NGOs know about it. Mm-hmm. So I get to see all this stuff that filters up from these amazing fish biologists and all their partners, you know, and all the research that goes on with environmental DNA, you know, to find out what's in the water or the, the huge floodplain restoration with large wood or the reintroduction of a rare cutthroat species. And so I sort of, I sort of get to see all that. And, you know, finally, I'm trying to make sure that these different parts of the Forest Service are able to get their job done. And sometimes you can say, well, you know what's happening in Oregon should happen in Georgia. Mm-hmm. And let me introduce you to the fish biologists there and the partners. So that's the kind of thing that I get to do. And that's why it's always interesting because I'm learning constantly from the best fish biologists in the country. Yeah. And that's awesome. 
So of all the things uh, coming across your desk and the things you see um, with our fish populations in the U.S. right now, what do you think the most threatened species of fish on y'all's managed lands uh, is right now? You know, I had the most amazing experience about a year and a half ago to partake in a reintroduction of the Paiute cutthroat, which is arguably the rarest trout in North America, at least above Mexico, right? Because we're still trying to find some of these populations in Mexico. And the Paiute cutthroat is on the Humboldt Toyabe, which is a huge national forest in Nevada and a little bit of California. So I went out there and I was with the, the Forest Service fish biologists and a bunch of great fish biologists from the Fish and Wildlife Service and the state of California to put back Paiute cutthroat they'd raised in the um, hatchery from the native gene pool from one stream that had, had these fish, and we reintroduced them. And the Paiute cutthroat is this beautiful sort of relative of the rainbow trout. It only lives in 11 miles of stream yeah. Um, yeah. In, in the world, and that's in Silver King Creek. It's in the Carson Iceberg Wilderness, which is like beautiful, rugged, western, you know, high elevation, ponderosa pine, and then it's got these big meadows, and it's, it was like this bluebird day. And so that is the rarest cutthroat we we have in the country, but it's a good story because these people have dedicated their careers to saving and bringing back and reintroducing the Paiute cutthroat. So it now inhabits all of the territory it ever has in the last 14,000 yeah. yeah. years since the glaciers left. So that that's that's a story, man, that I'll never forget. That was so cool. And a cool, cool Five Rivers connection is when we had Heather on the podcast a couple episodes ago, that was a story she told of her favorite uh-huh. story from the Odyssey of um, backpacking and to go catch those cutthroat. And wow. it's it's super cool. And I was always like wondering, I was like, oh, that's that's incredibly cool. I wonder, like, because she didn't even remember the name of the stream or anything. And um, she she was just like, the colors on that fish were like ridiculous. And that's cool that um, all that work went into helping that fish get back to its native native place. Yeah, there, there's nothing there's nothing cooler to me than seeing or catching a native cutthroat in the stream it's supposed to be in. It's just it's just sort of like a perfect moment in uh, in nature. Despite all the stuff we've done, you know, they're still there. So it, it, it's always an amazing moment. Yeah, that's super cool. So going off of that, what what then is your favorite species of trout? You know, I think my favorite species is the is the brook trout, eastern brook trout, where it's supposed to be. Okay. Now let me and I say that because as you guys know and a lot of people do, brook trout is a scourge in the West. They have pushed out so many native cutthroat from thousands and thousands of miles of stream. But where brook trout uh, are supposed to be, you know, in the Southern Appalachians, especially that, you know, they've been living there for 2 million years, 3 million years. We don't even know. Um, to me, they're, uh, you know, they're the emblem of the, of the wilderness They They need cold water, cleanest water. They're so beautiful with the white 
tips on their fins, you know, the, the coloration, they're so smooth. They love to eat dry flies. You know, they're not that hard to catch. I like that. Yeah, it's fun. Uh, so brook trout, brook trout's probably my favorite. Yeah, I'd have to agree with you on that because that's the that's the native fish to me growing up in Georgia. And they're super hard to find in Georgia. But if you go up to North Carolina, which isn't too far, um, they're all over the place. And they're so much fun to catch, like you said. And they always will just hit your dry fly with reckless abandon. <laughs> and exactly. they'll miss it. They'll miss it 70% of the time. But such a fun fish. Would that, of the species that you've gotten to fish for, would that also be your favorite favorite fish to catch? No. Favorite fish to catch is steelhead. I mean, there's just no comparison to a wild steelhead uh, in a big river. You know, swinging a fly on a spay rod is just is so amazing. You know, and it's, it's a lot of work. You're out, out there in the cold usually. You're bl- getting blanked. You know, a lot of days uh, you may get a tug and not connect, but when you do and you get the, bring that fish in and hold it, I mean, it's just incredible. They're, they're so strong, coming all the way up from the ocean with that mission, you know, to spawn. You just, you just can't help but respect steelhead. They're the best. How many times did you go steelhead fishing before you finally got, got your first one? Yeah, uh, yeah, a few times, definitely. You know, I uh, probably two or three days, and then I I got into it. So it was maybe I was lucky, um, but you know when they're there and you you know you put a fly in front of them, you know you have a decent chance of having them bite. Just finding them. Yeah. Very cool. Um, so moving back a little bit. Um, I think there's a lot of advice that can be gained and knowledge that can be gained from what we talked about earlier with how you went about getting yourself and breaking into the industry. But is there any other advice that you would give a college student or a high school student or a young person in general um, that wants to break into natural resources conservation? Yeah, you know, I think one of the one of those things besides being persistent or, or related to being persistent is, you know, if you if you know of a organization you really like and respect, or you have identified that kind of work you really want to do, then you need to go to that group or that agency and say, you know, can I volunteer for you? You can't find a job opening. It's just getting that exposure. And I tell people this all the time. Look, if you can't find a job with that group, see if you can volunteer with them on the weekend or something, and then they can see your passion. They can see what you have to offer. And when they have a job opening, they're going to put your resume on the top, you know, or they're going to even look at your resume because there's such stiff competition for some of these jobs. And you need to you need to form a relationship and connection with 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 people. You know you can't just be a, a resume. You can't just be a piece of paper. So those are the kind of things um, that I often say. And, and another is you know you can you can learn so much of this stuff online through books, talking to people. I mean there's so much to learn. That's why we love fishing. You know 
and especially fly fishing because you're always learning. Yeah. And when you're talking yeah. about conservation, it's the same thing. I mean, there's just so much to learn. So, so get engaged and start learning. That's amazing advice. Um, and I think that can go for more than, than just that group, uh, that industry as well. Yeah, yeah, I think so. So what are you most, what are you most excited about? We just talked about, I guess, uh, that future aspect of these young people coming up, uh, wanting to get plugged in and what they can do, but what excites you the most about the future of, um, natural resources, conservation, and maybe what even scares you a little bit? You know, what, what excites me most right now is that our country, you know, our society is finally focused on climate change. You know, the scientists have known about the greenhouse effect for God knows how many decades. I mean, we've, we've been seeing it happen, but we've been paying attention to it. You know, natural resource people, we're outside a lot. We're thinking about this, reading about it. We're, we're in tune, but now we've got leadership from the president on down. You've got the public freaking out. We've got crazy weather, you know, but the flip side of that is everyone is focusing on what they can do. And there's so many things that, you know, we all can do, the corporations, the governments can do, they're going to make a, a big difference. And, and it's not just reducing our impact on carbon, carbon emissions, but it's how do we adapt to things that are changing. And, and what I love about this related to fisheries is, so many of the things that we need to do are going to benefit water and watershed health and fisheries. And so, you know, the 30 and 30 campaign, protecting lands and having open space and public lands, like that's huge for many things, but it's so important for fisheries. And then working with farming and agriculture to improve that and, and working on how we deal with stormwater runoff and, you know, getting kids educated and caring about it. Like it all comes back to watershed health in the end. And so that's why I'm so excited about this focus on climate change for fisheries is because I think, you know, we can really restore a lot of the things that have been damaged or that have been lost in the fish world. And I'll tell you what, we've seen it on the East Coast. These rivers were trashed 100 years ago. The Potomac River, where I fish all the time, was a joke. It was disgusting. It's the best shad run in the country. It's got great largemouth, you know. It's got brook trout in the headwaters. And so... You know, a little bit of time, a little bit of love, a lot more focus, and I feel like we can restore a lot of these fisheries and have a better quality of life. So, you know, bring it. The focus on climate, we've been waiting for this. Let's go, let's get to work, and we'll have all these other benefits from from doing that. That's really exciting, and and I agree with with that. It's really cool to see, especially our generation, getting getting excited about – protecting our watersheds and um repairing repairing riparian zones and that's a tongue twister um (laughs) but it's really it's really cool to see it is and and and, you know it is going to be up to these next generations because you know our parents generation they did a lot of great things they did not do nearly enough and so it's it's time to get serious and when you look at what's happening with the sea level rise in the Chesapeake and you're looking at the storms 
And, you know, take your pick, man. The heat wave, it's like, it's time to deal with it now. And so, to me, that's that's what's scary, right? But it's also this huge opportunity, and I feel like it's going to take, you know, a lot of people to do it. So, we'll have more friends to care about what we care about in the end. Totally. That's exciting. Well, thanks, Nat, for your time. This has been informative for sure. I'm sure Joseph uh, and and I both speak for Joseph and I that we both learned a lot. Um, and where can people find out more, get involved with the Forest Service work? I know that you kind of said volunteering and, you know, is there kind of any formal way that people kind of go about that? You know, is there kind of posts on the Forest Service website, uh, anything along those lines? Yeah, I'd, I'd encourage folks to, you know, check out the Forest Service website and, and then especially work through your local non-government organizations like Trout Unlimited and Coast of Five Rivers and the local, you know, friends of this watershed group. You know, they're the ones that are that know about the opportunities to do some of that really cool um, volunteer work or, or monitoring and, and we'll have this sort of local information. So it, it's been a real pleasure. I've enjoyed talking with both of you. So I can't say enough about uh, thank you for the invitation. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. And I think this should uh, encourage people to go explore their public lands around them. Right on. We welcome you. Come on over. <laughs> awesome. Thanks for coming on that. Thanks, you guys. Take care.